Here's a question for you. Uh, Does Jesus love you? Does Jesus love you? Well, come on, does he? Does Jesus love you? Yes, Jesus loves you. You sure Jesus loves you? Come on, tell me, are you sure that Jesus loves you? Are you absolutely, positively sure that Jesus loves you? Yes. Yeah? So then what you're saying is from the depth of your heart, you're totally 100% convinced that Jesus really, truly loves you. Then when was the last time you evangelised somebody? (gasps) What's he doing? You know, a moment ago he was just simply asking me if I thought Jesus loves me and now he's asking me when was the last time that I evangelised somebody? What have those two things got to do with one another? And when's the real minister getting back anyway? (laughs) Well, if you can't see how God's love for you, Jesus' love for you and... uh, and evangelism, how they go together. My hope is that by the end of today's talk, you'll see that they do very much go together. Of course, here in church, we're currently involved in a sermon series called The Bible Storyline Project, a series in which we're looking to trace the storyline that runs all the way through the Bible from beginning to end. Today, we reach part seven of the storyline, and we're going to be looking specifically at uh, the first five verses of the book of Lamentations, So if you don't already have your Bible open up in front of you at Lamentations chapter 1, can I encourage you to turn with me there now, page 581 of the small print, uh, 1273 of the large print Bibles, Lamentations chapter 1. And as you're looking that up, let me remind you of the story so far. Do you remember? In part 1, we saw how God created everything and we saw how he created it all so very perfect. But then, of course, in part two, we saw how people spoiled all that as they rebelled against God, their maker, and they were punished for their sin. But then, of course, in part three, we saw how God made three great promises to a man named Abraham. Promises that were, in effect, promises to to fix up the problem of sin in the world. Do you remember the promises? There were, of course, uh, God promising to bless Abraham's descendants, Uh, He promised to give those descendants a special land of their own and he promised to make them into uh, a great nation, a mighty people. Then in part four we saw God starting to fulfil those great promises as he rescued Abraham's descendants uh, who had become known as the Israelites, rescued them out of the land of Egypt. And then in part five we saw the Israelites right there on the edge of the promised land They were looking in, they could smell the milk and honey off in the distance. But before they went in, God made an agreement with them. He said, okay guys, before you go in, you need to know that once you're in there, you need to obey me, obey my laws. If you do, then you will be blessed, but if you don't, well, you'll be cursed. And then, last week, in part six, we saw the Israelites finally there in the promised land. Now they really were a great nation, a mighty people, and now they were truly, thoroughly blessed by God. And we saw how uh, the reign of King Solomon was a truly glorious time in the history of Israel. God himself dwelling with the Israelites there in his magnificent temple, uh, the king living in his magnificent palace, uh, with the whole city of Jerusalem like a beautiful jewel in uh, Israel's crown. The people of Israel living at peace with, with one another 
and also living at peace with all the nations around them. It was a time of great wealth, a time of great abundance, a time of great happiness. It was as though these Israelites had returned to the Garden of Eden. It was a glorious, brilliant existence as the people of Israel experienced all the promises God made to Abraham. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) Or did they? Got a funny feeling from the picture up on the screen there that that's probably not what happens. That's probably not what happened. Because today what we're going to do is we're going to hit the fast forward button. And we jump forward another 400 years or so into the future from the days of King Solomon. We come to the year approximately 550 BC. We come to part 7 of the Bible storyline. So let's pick it up now, shall we? Let's see how things are now going for these gloriously blessed Israelites. Please read with me from Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Oh dear, what a difference 400 years of history makes. Now the city, the city of Jerusalem, lies empty. All her inhabitants are gone. Jerusalem is like a ghost town. Now far from some glorious jewel, Jerusalem has become a sad and sorry sight. Uh, described here as being like, like a widow in mourning. Um, inconsolable in her grief. Uh, sobbing in sorrow. Tears on her cheeks. It's vivid imagery, isn't it? And of course we know that what the writer of Lamentations is describing here is actually the aftermath of the great Babylonian invasion of Israel where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked the Israelites in the most brutal and the most terrible way. The Babylonian army systematically making its way through Israel, killing and destroying everything in sight. Masses of men and and women and children all being slaughtered at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar's ruthless soldiers. And the few pitiful survivors rounded up like sheep and carted off to the, the faraway country of Babylonia to live there as slaves. The city of Jerusalem now left totally destroyed. All those buildings, once so magnificent. Temple of God, palace of the king, the great wall around the city. All of it now brought to ruins. And everything of value, all the Israelites' belongings, everything they 
held as valuable, now all taken away as bounty for the Babylonians. No wonder the picture that we have here in Lamentations is one of a a weeping, inconsolable, grief-stricken widow. This is a tragic situation for the once glorious Israel. And, And to make matters worse, this is not actually the first time that Israel has been invaded since the time of uh, King Solomon. No, in fact, about, about 100 years prior to this, another country, Assyria, also invaded Israel. And at that time, they essentially annihilated all of the tribes of Israel, except just one, one tribe, by the name of Judah. And that's pretty much all that was even there by the time Nebuchadnezzar invaded, just that one tribe, Judah. And now Judah has almost been wiped out too, this close to being annihilated. Just a small remnant of people remaining now, a remnant who now live lives as slaves in a foreign country. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3. After affliction and harsh labour, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Oh, what a sad picture this is. Israel has now lost all the stuff of the promises. No longer being blessed by God. No longer living in that special promised land. No longer this great mighty nation. They've been decimated. It's all gone. And misery is the result. Look with me at the miserable language of verse 4. Verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate. Her Her priests groan. Her maidens grieve. She is in bitter anguish. Oh, what a miserable picture this is. And so far from the glory days of King Solomon. Of course, it makes us ask the question, doesn't it? Um, what happened? <laughs> How did all, that, all of it go so terribly wrong? And we learn the answer to that question in the final verse from today's passage. Read with me verse 5. Verse 5. Judah's foes have become her masters, her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief. Because of her many sins, her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. Why has all this misery come upon the Israelites? Well, we know the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Israel has sinned and so now God has punished her. And of course that shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, we remember that agreement that God made with the Israelites in in part five of the storyline. If they obeyed God and his laws when they went into the land, that he would 
bless them. But if they didn't, if they didn't obey, if they sinned, then he would curse them. And that is exactly what we see happening here. What we need to keep in mind is the fact that God has actually been incredibly patient with these Israelites. Because the fact is, in that 400 years since the, the time of King Solomon, the Israelites have been sinning from the very beginning, right up until the end. They have been sinning the whole way along. And in that time, God has sent prophet after prophet to warn the Israelites. No, to plead with the Israelites to stop sinning. Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk. Prophet after prophet after prophet. But time and time again, the people of Israel ignored God's pleading And so in the end, God was left with no choice. He simply did what he promised that he would do. He brought upon these Israelites his dreadful curse. And now, misery and anguish are the result. And that's part seven of the Bible (laughs) storyline. Not exactly happily ever after, is it? No, a sad, sad story where the Israelites... They lose all the glorious things promised to Abraham. They lose it all because of their sin. A story where the Israelites are punished under God's dreadful curse because of that sin. And that's part seven. And you've got to say it would be a rather distressing thought, wouldn't it? If that were how the Bible were to finish if that was the last page of the Bible, you know, the, the final verse of the Bible reading, and, and they all lived miserably ever after. A distressing thought indeed. And I can tell you it would be a huge worry for you and me too if this were to be how the Bible storyline finished. Because think about it. Here in part 7, we've got God's special people, the Israelites, handpicked by God. God himself giving them his special laws. God himself telling them exactly what they were to do, how they were to live, exactly what he expected from them. And yet in the end, their sinful hearts kept them from obeying God. So if God's special people couldn't avoid his curse coming upon them, then friend, what chance do you think a sinner like you or me has to avoid God's curse? The answer is none at all. The fact is, if the Bible storyline were to finish here, then that would mean that you and I, all of us, are under God's curse. And it means that on that final day of judgment... That the best we would have to look forward to is an eternity of pain and sorrow and bitter anguish. Not unlike the cursed Israelites that we see in the book of Lamentations. And yet, of course, as Christians, this is where we can say, praise God, isn't it? 
This is where we can say praise God because we know that this is not the end of the storyline. That the Bible will continue on and lead towards that great climax that comes at the end of the storyline. That great climax that is all about Jesus Christ. And so we know that what we still need to do is now consider the difference that Jesus makes as we consider this part seven of the storyline. So what we do now is we, we hit the fast forward button again. And we're going to jump now into the future once again, another 500 years from the time of the Babylonian invasion. We come to a time about 30 AD. We see Jesus. He's with his disciples. It's night time and they're in a garden. Jesus, you look at Jesus and you see he's not smiling, he's not laughing. In fact, he doesn't look happy at all. In fact, quite the opposite. You can see that he actually appears visibly distressed, full of anguish. Anguish so deep, so intense, that it makes him feel like he could drop dead at any moment. Read with me these verses from Mark chapter 14 up on the screen. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Friends, think about this. What could possibly distress Jesus like this? I mean, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus, the one who commands demons to come out of people. Jesus, the one who raises the dead. Jesus, the one who commands the wind and the waves be still. And they obey. Jesus, the one who has all the power of the heavenly host at his disposal. Jesus, the all-knowing, the all-powerful second person of the Trinity. What could possibly shake him to the very core like we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, of course, we know. It's because he knows that the very next day he will be hanging on a cross. There bearing the sins of the world. There handed the cup of God's wrath, which he will drink to the very last drop. We know that it's that that shakes him to the very core. It's made clear for us in Luke's account of the same event. Where in Luke chapter 22, we read how in the garden, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond the disciples, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, 
Take this cup from me. That's the cup of God's curse. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. But obviously, that wasn't even enough. Because we go on to read, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The Son of God, so distraught that sweat pours from him and splashes to the ground like like blood flowing from an open wound. Friends, if you want an idea of how dreadful it is to be under the curse of God, then you can look at the descriptions of what happened to the Israelites in a book like Lamentations. You'll see what the curse looks like. But if you really want to understand that curse in its clearest form, then think about Jesus. Think about who he is. And then consider the deep, deep distress and sorrow and anguish that he showed there in the garden at the very thought of facing God's dreadful curse. You want to know if Jesus loves you? And think about what he sacrificed for you on the cross. Because it's true, isn't it? The more we love somebody, the more we will be prepared to sacrifice for them. That's why when I watch telly and every now and then you know, I see that sad story of a person who's desperately in need, they're, they're sick and they, you know, they need some operation to help them out. You know, sometimes I'm moved by that and I might pick up the phone and, and yes, I might throw a few dollars their way. I'm willing to sacrifice that for them. But if it was my wife or my daughter who desperately needed that operation then I can tell you I would be willing to sacrifice everything I have for them. If they need money, my goodness, I'll bankrupt myself for them. If they need some organ, oh, they can take mine. (laughs) They can take all of mine. I don't know how good they are anymore. I'm 40 now. (laughs) But for what it's worth, they can take it all. I'll sacrifice it all. I love them that much. Well, friend, you need to realise that Jesus sacrificed so much more than that for you when he went to the cross because of his deep, deep, deep love for you. You want to know if Jesus loves you? He loves you to hell and back. And when you comprehend that, And I mean really wrap your head around that love. When you really understand it for all it is worth, then you know what? You can't help but be changed by it. You you can't truly know that Jesus loves you and know exactly how much he loves you 
and remain unchanged. The the Apostle Paul was a man who really, truly knew the depths of Jesus' love for him. And in the second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul wrote about the effect of that love in his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he wrote, on behalf of himself and his fellow missionaries, he wrote, Christ's love compels us. Christ's love compels us. What does the word compels mean? Well, if you were to look it up in a thesaurus, then you would see words like requires, obliges, coerces, makes, necessitates. See, Paul knows the depths of Jesus' love for him. And now that love compels, requires, obliges him to do something. What is it? Well, Jesus' love compels Paul to tell other people about Jesus. Jesus' love compels Paul to evangelise, to plead with the lost people of this world to accept Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and so go from being under God's curse to being under his blessing. That's why, just a few verses later, Paul pleads with the Corinthians, we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Christ's love compels him to make this plea. See, friends, coming to a true knowledge of Christ's love for you, really understanding it, comprehending it, It's a bit like standing on the lower side of the Warragamba Dam when they open up the floodgates. The fact is, you are going to get washed away. Well, when you are hit by Christ's love, it washes you away. And it takes you with it. You go where it goes. And Christ's love goes to the lost of this world. See, friend, what is it that makes us willing to invite a friend along to an evangelistic event here at church like the one we had last night? What makes us, what would make somebody do something like that? Christ's love compels us. And what would make somebody willing to stand up here in the front of everybody, in front of everybody, in front of a lot of people that they don't even know, and there bear testimony to the work of Jesus Christ in their life, like our dear sister Claire did last night? Christ's love compels us. What makes us prepared to share our faith with that kid who sits by themselves in the school playground or with that workmate sitting in the, in the lunchroom at work? What makes us willing to, to, to be bold and, and go up to them and sit down and start talking with them about Jesus Christ? Christ's love compels us. 
What makes us willing to give up our time and our money and our energy to go up to the local primary school and there spend time teaching three classes a week of school scripture so that these kids might know who Jesus Christ is. Christ's love compels us. What makes us willing to give up a Wednesday morning when, when all the other women of the church are going to a Bible study so that y- y- you, can, you can go on and actually evangelise people in the easy English Bible study or go out on a cold, wet, winter's dark night on a Monday night to the Easy English Bible Study then and give all your time and effort telling people there, most of them for the first time, all about who Jesus is. What makes somebody do that? Christ's love compels us. What makes us willing to give sacrificially to the support of our mission partners all around the world? Or even willing ourselves to give up what we have here, to leave these shores, to go out there and preach the gospel of Christ to a people group who has not yet heard it. Christ's love compels us. Friend, let me speak it plain. If it's not your priority to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out there, then can I suggest that perhaps you don't really believe that Jesus loves you? Or, at least, you don't really understand the depths of his love for you. But friend, today, you have seen so very clearly that Jesus does indeed love you. He loves you to hell and back. Now it's time to let that love wash you away. And may you let that love take you to the lost of this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you now and confess our sin before you. Father, um, we know that we've rebelled against you in what we've thought, in, in the stuff that we've said, in our actions, and that in doing so we have brought upon ourselves your dreadful curse. We're so very sorry. Our Lord, we want to praise you that in your great plan Jesus came and died on the cross, there bearing all the pain and sorrow and um, anguish of the curse so that we would never have to. Father, please help us more and more to understand the depths of Christ's love for us. And as we grasp that, please take us to the lost of this world. Please use us to share with all those around us the wonderful news that in Jesus we can have the curse removed and be given all your wonderful blessings instead. For we pray in our loving Saviour's name. Amen.